from Utility Dive Studios in Washington, D.C., it's the Electric Power Station. I'm your host, Gavin Bade, and today we're checking in with PJM CEO Andy Ott on winter reliability, reserve market reform, and what's next for his capacity market. And welcome back to the Electric Power Station. I'm so happy to be here on the sidelines of the CIRA Week conference with Andy Ott, the CEO of PJM Interconnection, the nation's largest wholesale electricity market. Welcome back to the podcast, Andy. Thank you, Gavin. appreciate being here. Well, I was happy to be able to catch up with you this week um, because there are a lot of things that just that are coming out of PJM, as always, but especially recently, right? Um, the first thing I wanted to talk about is your new winter reliability report that you, put, that you recently put out, um, showing that... Well, PJM did pretty well this winter. You were resilient, you were reliable, and you know the forced outages were down. Can you give us a, a little the top line numbers from that report? Yeah, generally. Uh, so this was the we had a relatively short cold snap in 2019, but what we observed during that period in January was the uh, essentially the forced outage rate of generation was down in the 10 percent range between 8.6, 10.6 percent. Where if you recall last year we were at 12 percent. Back in polar vortex, we we're looking at 22 percent. So what we're seeing is a, essentially a uh, improving, consi- continuous improvement, if you will, in generation performance. It's some capacity performance. I think some, though, we're seeing the newer generators coming online are ha- have uh, significantly lower forced outage rates. The older fleet, if you will, was in the, you know, the I'll say 15, 18 percent. Uh, so what we're seeing is the the, the stuff that is uh, on the path to retirement has higher forced outage rates as they go offline then and retire. The, the whole fleet essentially is performing uh, at a decreased forced outage rate. Also saw a significant amount of um, of uh, gas units uh, performing better than than last year from a I'll say a fuel supply perspective, which was also great. Yeah, absolutely. So you're talking about these older generators having for, higher forced outage rates. Are those mostly coal generators? Are they old gas? Are they nuclear? Like, what are we looking at there? I, th- I think it's a mix of uh, the older coal plants and I think the few older gas plants, generally where you're at there. I see, I see. So bringing this back to, of course, whenever something comes out of PJM, every you know every resource class, whether it's coal or gas or nuclear, whoever will say, oh, my resource was the one who, you know, we saved the frozen grid this winter. Um, you know, from your perspective, um, did any one resource save the grid? No, no yeah. one resource saved the grid. And again, what's, what's great and what we've seen the trend is we're more diverse than we've ever been. So we're seeing the coal fleet, the gas fleet, and the nuclear fleet all performed during this period, and I think we uh, were roughly probably a third, a third, a third again of of those uh, of the supply mix. Also, saw wind actually hit its all-time peak uh, mm-hmm. production for us uh, during that day in January, up uh, almost at 8,000 megawatts. So, really, what we're seeing is again a diverse uh, supply fleet, which again for us is uh, a blessing, and I think it's also uh, resilient. Absolutely, and reading between the lines of your statement, there it would. It, the insinuation would be that, oh, we probably don't need a federal bailout to save some of these plants that are going offline. Um, if you look this winter, we did pretty well with what, with what we've got today. And Yeah, and again, I think what we saw was the, um, the gas units performing well. Obviously, we saw the nuclear units performing well, and we saw the coal units performing well. There are some elevated uh, um, retirement, excuse me, elevated uh, forced outage rates for the units that are on path to retire. But we did see, and, and again, I think the 
the price of gas stayed low during this cold snap. It was shorter than the previous one. That may have been a, a, a contributing factor. But what, what overall we're seeing, again, is a continuous improvement, and that's great. Absolutely. I, I just wanted to ask about gas delivery in particular because that's something that um, a, lot of, a lot of times comes up in Washington, especially among the coal and nuclear owners. They say, well, gas is interruptible. Secretary Perry made that point today when he was talking about coal and nuclear plants. Um, yeah. You know, how was gas deliverability during this cold snap? And again, going, during this cold snap, because again, I'll emphasize the cold snap was shorter than ones we've seen in the past. Uh, we did have one pipeline disruption where the pipe actually ruptured and had a force majeure event, but otherwise we had fairly uh, consistent gas availability and deliverability. So we didn't see the switch over to oil. Um, it, like we saw last year, we saw a fairly significant amount of the gas unit switch to oil. This year we didn't see that because, again, uh, the deliverability uh, stayed, stayed up and stayed, stayed uh, consistent. And again, we can see when the gas units flip over to oil, uh, usually that's going to be because of price. Mm-hmm. Not gas availability. I see, and and like you said, this cold snap was shorter than than last year's cold snap, and certainly the the 2014 polar vortex, right? Would be Cor- yeah. Correct. And and again, I think we didn't see the gas spike, the gas price spike. Therefore, you didn't see the switch over to oil. So we didn't really see a lot of disruption in the gas um, delivery system or pricing uh, disruption, or I'll say anomalies. So what does this tell you? I know that you guys are working on, in your stakeholder process, putting together some fuel security reforms um, to address the issue of gas availability, other fuel availability. What lessons does this winter teach you to inform that process? Yeah, and again, I think this winter, because we didn't see the sustained deep cold, uh, we really didn't see that type of phenomena where we're worried about um, if we have cold weather for two weeks in a row or two weeks straight, then we start to see the stress on the delivery systems because you switch over to oil when your price of gas goes high. Then you start to run out of oil, and then you, you have these situations that they have in New England on a you know more common basis. We don't see that in PJM. So really haven't seen you know this year because uh, it was a relatively mild winter. So uh, looking forward to engaging stakeholders though, to get that issue resolved within PJM. Mm-hmm. But your release, you said it wasn't all hunky-dory this winter, right? You identified some problems, particularly with the energy market that this cold snap uh, right. identified. Can you spell those out for us? Yeah, well, essentially, again, as we've as we've said to stakeholders, and we're about to do a reserve pricing filing, uh, again, during this, the, the right in the middle of the coldest day, when we really needed uh, premium reserve products, the price of reserves was going to zero or very low numbers. So essentially, the, these anomalies or these um, these uh, incorrect pricing of reserves that we need to run the system. So we have the 30-minute reserve, the 10-minute reserve, these high-quality reserve products. We're depending on them. We schedule them. And the price, essentially, even during the heavy load, winter load, is, is close to zero. That's again, points to a problem. Why is that? Again, it's because uh, the pricing mechanism for reserves doesn't look at, essentially, as soon as we're two or three me- megawatts of reserve above what a, you know, the, the narrower view of what we need, the price drops to zero because we don't have uh, a proper reserve uh, market. And I think that's the key, and that's what we've talked to with the board and with stakeholders. That's why we're going to do a reserve pricing filing coming up uh, the end of uh, the month. 
Okay, excellent. Could you tell us a little bit more about what will be in that filing? How will it fix this problem? Well, essentially what we've looked at, we took a step back and looked at a comprehensive solution. Because you see the same problem where pricing flexibility and pricing these premium services at all the RTO jurisdictions, everybody's working on it. You hear ramp products, you hear reserve products, you hear things like this in, a, in other jurisdictions. So we took a step back and said, okay, what exactly do we need to preserve reliability? What are the products we use? How do we schedule the system? What would, what would essentially address these anomalies in prices that we're seeing. And so we went through and said, okay, we need to price the synchronized reserve, the 30-minute reserve, consistently in both the real-time and the day-ahead market. We need a sloped uh, demand curve, operating reserve demand curve, so we don't see that uh, cliff of price drop-off. So those are the essential elements of the, of the proposal. What do you say? I mean, so that proposal, like your earlier capacity market filing, was uh, controversial among some stakeholders with your right. market monitor. People think that it will increase prices without um, without taking care of some of the issues in the market. You know, what do you say to people who are skeptical about that uh, that proposal? Well, again, I think what we saw during polar vortex was a significant. I mean, you know, $100 million uh, uplift charge uh, because we essentially were, we needed reserves, we had to pay for them, we're obligated if generators pr uh, deliver uh, reliability service, we got to pay them their, their, their cost. And what we find is it's not included in the market price. So all of a sudden you see this big spike in out-of-market payments. Nobody's hedged for that. Nobody plans ahead for that. The, you know, the, potentially the market sees that as, a, as, a, as a, uh, an unknown or unhedgeable charge. This will get rid of that. So there was a significant um, impact on the retail markets in Pennsylvania, in Ohio, in Maryland during those times in Boulder Vortex. This would address that issue. So when people talk about cost increase, you got to look at the other side of it, is that this will actually eliminate some of these uncertainties and some of these risks so the retailers won't have to charge that in their in their uh, rates. So I think, I think there will be a significant amount of cost offset also. Absolutely. So let's just bring this back to layman's terms a second here. Um, you know, last year when we talked about the formulation of this um, of the reserve market filing, you you talked about the need to allow some larger plants to also set prices in the energy market, not just the more flexible gas generators. Is that still kind of the core of what's in play here? No, it isn't. That okay. that issue we we called that uh, you know, the convex hall pricing or or pricing letting inflexible resources set price. We took that off the table. We basically said, look, we need to address the reserve pricing issue. We need to make a complete, I'll say, you know, a comprehensive solution to that. Certainly, you know, we may look into the future at some of these other issues, but this is the, the key issue is pricing reserves that we use for reliability accurately. So you'll be making this filing with FERC and asking them to invalidate the rules for your, for your energy and reserve market, right? Well, we're actually, we'll, be, we'll be basically making the case that our current market is unjust and unreasonable and they need to be, uh, the rules need to be changed and that'll be the, primarily, um, the primary mission, if you will, of this filing is to get FERC to uh, approve a significant change to the reserve pricing. So this is a lot of change going on in the PJM market recently. We're just going to talk about the capacity market in a little bit here. Mm -hmm. That for, you know, you guys asked FERC to invalidate those rules. They went ahead and did that uh, through them out, and we're still waiting for uh, them to kind of come back and and say whether your your revised proposal was okay. So right. we had the you know invalidated rules in the capacity market. Now you're asking them to come in and throw out the energy market rules. It's a lot of it's a lot of change going on in your market right now. Yeah, I think for the for the energy market again, it's not the energy market rules. It's reserve Sorry, pricing. Reserve right? pricing. And I think the key there is is uh, um, we're, we're asking them to essentially modify the way we price reserves. And I think 
that will improve the energy price formation. It will improve reserve price formation. I think the issue with the capacity market, there was a lot more in play there. Uh, there were there were issues about public policy. There were issues about uh, you know, uh, I'll say the the rights of states to self determine their their resource mix. The energy market's a much much more uh, uh, simple issue. It's the simple issue is this: we we essentially run these generators every day for reliability. Nobody question nobody's that's no controversy. People know that we do that. The question is: is what should they be paid? Should they be paid out of the market or in the market? And we think it's a pretty simple answer there. It needs to be in the market. So I think it's, a, it's not quite the same issue because the controversy over a public policy in the capacity market is a much bigger deal. Yeah, well, let's talk about that controversy uh, in the capacity market. Why don't we? Um, y'all sent a letter to FERC last week or, or early this week, I suppose, um, asking them, to basically get a move on when it comes to ruling on the capacity market reform there. We've, I think it was back in, God, when was your last filing on this? When did you put in the revised? I, I think, think it was I think back it was in early this year, early, early part of uh, 2018 is what my recollection. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was, yeah, things run together, but it was uh, the first part of 2018, I believe. Yeah, and I, and I believe they came down and, inve- you know, they, they turned away your initial proposal in June, and then you came back and filed a new one in October. Correct. They are still working through that. We don't know when something's going to come up. Correct. But what you told them this week was, get a move on, because we have deadlines for an upcoming yeah. auction. Tell us a little bit yeah, about it's that crea- issue. It's creating a significant amount of uh, uncertainty for the market. Uh, so so, so fo- we've already delayed the auction, of course, by a couple months. Uh, we had proactively did that to uh, give Twerk time. Yeah, it was and originally it, supposed to be in March. Like no, cut, it, no, I'm it, sorry. In, in in May. Right. In May. And, and yeah. Sorry. Yeah. We moved it to August. And I think the key, though, is the March date you're talking about is the deadline start in, uh, uh, coming in in March. And I think so we just reminded for, OK, these deadlines are occurring. Uh, stakeholders need to start to give us information. We need to start posting information to stakeholders. We're commencing the process of running the auction. So having um, no action from FERC is creating more and more uncertainty, and that's only going to worsen over time. So we felt it was important to remind FERC that we do have these deadlines and, and we do need to uh, to uh, ask them to give us a comprehensive order so that it will address this uncertainty. Some of them are pretty soon, right? Don't you have to post prices for the minimum offer price rule, the price floor in the market, on March 17, I think, according to your filing? Yeah, I think so the, the, early, uh, the, the, the early deadlines are in mid-March, March 17th. Th- those few things we have to do there, I think we can address those issues. Once we get into the April uh, time frame, where we have some fairly significant deadlines in the middle of April, it gets much harder to have this uncertainty and you know, we really need, again, that's one of the reasons we put this uh, letter into FERC and informational filing is what it, what it was, to just make sure to remind them that these deadlines do matter and it's requiring stakeholders and PGM to do duplicative work. Yeah, you, when you say duplicative work, you explicitly said in this filing, we're telling our stakeholders, our market participants, you need to prepare under both sets of rules right now because we don't know both the the old rules that were invalidated and then you're also your new proposal that's pending at FERC. Um, how does that complicate matters for a generation owner? Well, it's essentially the generation owner uh, you know, has to do two sets of, of, uh, of analyses. And, and again, uh, the, the, the uncertainty created 
you're trying to submit offers, you're trying to submit your position, you don't know what the rules are going to be. So not only don't you don't know what they're going to be, but it could be, uh, uh, you know, some, some time before you will. So it, it creates a significant amount of work and a significant amount of anxiety for the generators. The other key is that if we would proceed to, to run you know, an auction under these kind of circumstances, it, the auction, certainly the markets don't work as well when you have this kind of uncertainty. Could there be a legal challenge to, if you did have to run it under rules that were already thrown out by FERC, could you see a well, legal challenge the, to well, the market result, to the auction results? Yeah, and, and again, I mean, although we posed it in, in this um, informational filing, we posed well, you know, this notion of we, we, we could be forced to go ahead and run it. There's a significant legal challenge to that because the rules were found unjust and unreasonable. So we just wanted to point out to FERC the the uh, uncertainty here is causing a problem. So uh, more to come on that, but I think mm -hmm. I think the reality is this filing was essentially to remind FERC that the uncertainty exists and we need action. We know that there's a vacancy at FERC right now. It's no secret that they've been deadlocked on a few issues. Right. First it was pipelines, then LNG. They broke that with a compromise, but it seems like there's something going on internally that they can't seem to churn out an order on this. What are your conversations like with the commission? Well, I don't have conversations with the commission on this because that would be an ex parte. So, uh, really, I, I have no idea uh, what, uh, as nobody does, because it's it's a it's a situation where the, the it's in front of the commission at this point. So there's no there's no such discussion. My guess is obviously they're struggling through the same difficulties that we struggled through because it took us a few years to come up with this proposal. You may recall, because it isn't it, it is not an easy answer. We have obviously the market incentives, then you also have the, the legitimate rights of state interests and what states uh, want to determine what their resource mix will be. Those are legitimate uh, uh, requests for the state. So it's not an easy answer, but we've got we've to find a path forward. And I think a good compromise solution coming out of FERC would, would be very beneficial. I wonder what your conversations are like with your state stakeholders today. Um, I know that some of them are considering if the if FERC approves your proposal, they might act to take their subsidized resources, particularly nuclear plants, out of the capacity market using a mechanism that you that you all outlined called the fixed resource right. requirement. Well, um, yeah. I, I've heard that that's very likely for a state like Illinois with a lot of nuclear plants. What you know. Is that your understanding as well, and is that okay with you from a market operation standpoint? Well, again, I think for the Illinois case, I think it depends on what FERC, the FERC order would say. Mm -hmm. so remember, we, the, there were two proposals put to FERC. One was a very extreme minimum offer price that, uh, rule that was advocated by the market monitor. Another was a much more moderate sort of compromise type solution that was advocated by PJM. Um, you know, I think the Illinois comments were towards the, the, the more severe uh, MOPR. Uh, so if, if, if we had that come out of FERC, they, they would feel they would need to, to uh, go down the fixed resource path. I think the PJM compromise proposal, I think, would be a lot less um, uh, onerous from their perspective, is my opinion. And I think they'd probably be able to work through that uh, by having, uh, you know, essentially these, uh, the proposal we had put forth, which was, you know, they could just have certain units elect to uh, pair up with load. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but at the end of the day, if uh, we have states already in PJM who are fixed resource states and sort of sit um, mm -hmm. in, that, in that FRR, so it's certainly workable. And should any state uh, choose to do that, uh, certainly fine with us and we'll work within the market and uh, that structure is fine.
There's been a lot of saber rattling from state lawmakers, regulators over, well, if PJM and FERC don't do what we want, maybe we'll just leave. Um, is that a serious concern for you? Uh, I, I think, again, most of what I've been hearing uh, that folks would, the way when they say leave, they mean would, would uh, leave the capacity market and do the FRR as far as actually exit PJM. I haven't really heard uh, that, you know those types of discussions recently. I think uh, obviously this is an emotional um, issue for folks, and people feel that they uh, need to uh, be heard. So I think it was more trying to make sure that we understood the seriousness of their concerns, and certainly we do. Mm -hmm. Why are these issues so hard for your stakeholder group? I mean, you weren't able to come to a consensus for the capacity market filing. You, you know, the PJM staff had to go, uh, basically go it alone and put their own proposal to FERC. And then that's what happened with reserve pricing again. There was a lot of debate around it. And then there was no consensus and you guys went, and went ahead and put forward your own proposal. Why mm -hmm. is it so difficult for your stakeholders to come together on something, whether it's capacity or reserve market? Or well, uh, th these are significant issues. Uh, they're complicated. Uh, there's dollars at stake. There, uh, there will be winners and losers from a point of view of, of, the, of the financial outcome. So I, I think what we're seeing here is the, um, you know, the stakeholders are divided on, on these issues and there's no easy answers, especially in, in the areas um, that are affected by public policy concerns like the capacity market. On the energy and reserve pricing, I think that one was simply a dollar and cents um, issue. We, we, we uh, put forth evidence that said we're, we're using reserves, we're using reliability services from generators and we're not paying for them and we're paying mm -hmm. for them out of market um, and this is a problem and, and uh, we can't sustain that. It's not a sustainable future for us. And again, I think other jurisdictions, as I have said, uh, are trying to figure out ways to pay for flexibility. So I think it's a common problem. But if you're on the the customer side of that, you're saying, I'm already paying enough. Uh, and, and that's really, I think, it's as simple as that. And then why, when you can't come to consensus among the stakeholder group, what's the rationale from you and the rest of the leadership team to say, okay, well, we're going to go and make a filing anyway? Well, in this particular case, for the reserve pricing, we're, we're trying to create a market design that is sustainable into the future. And as we look at the the changing resource mix. We have more and more renewable resources, more and more distributed resources. We need more and more flexibility. So, so if we have this um, uh, problem in the reserve pricing where we're not paying for the uh, flexibility that we need, we can't sustain that. Sooner or later, we're going to run into a reliability problem. So from our, our calculus was, we're trying to create a market that is sustainable and fair. And so in this particular case, we felt strongly enough about this issue that we felt we had to move forward. Do you think the PJM stakeholder model is sustainable for the long term, decade or more? Oh, the stakeholder model certainly is sustainable. I think uh, I think PJM has been held up as a model of of, uh, of uh, you know consensus building within the stakeholder. So I think the model is um, certainly sustainable. Currently, some of the issues and some of the behaviors in the, in the stakeholder community where I think things have been delayed and, and not been addressed in a timely manner. I know the stakeholders have admitted that to themselves and they're working on that through, uh, through their uh, governance process. Well, we'll all be keeping a close eye <laughs> on the stakeholder process there, on the developments at FERC and everything else in the nation's largest electricity market. That market is PJM and its CEO is Andy Ott. Andy, thanks so much for being on the Electric Power Station. Thank you, Gavin. Good to see you again. Always a pleasure.
Gavin Bade, and this is the Electric Power Station.